One of the most famous actors of the 19th century was a man called William Charles McGreedy. McGreedy. And he got into a conversation with a preacher one day. And the preacher said to him, I wish you could explain something to me. Um, he said, you appear before crowds night after night with fiction and the crowds come wherever you go. I'm preaching the essential, unchangeable truth and I'm not getting any crowd at all. What's the difference between you and me? Uh, McCready's famous answer was, well, that's quite simple. I can tell you the difference between you and me. I present my fiction as though it were truth and you present your truth as though it were fiction. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel sympathy for that preacher. Um, you see, I think we live in a world where conviction, our convictions and our confidence, our certainty in the message of Jesus Christ constantly comes under attack. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one who feels like this. Um, so, for example, when the late uh, physicist Stephen Hawking, he, he dismissed the idea of creating the universe. Um, I, f I feel it a bit when people like that say those things. Uh, he wrote this, he said, it's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Well, I feel a bit you know, troubled when I read things like that, when I hear things like that. I know his co-writer wrote the script for Star Wars, so maybe you shouldn't trust it too much, but um, that's the background of his co-writer. But Hawking asserted also that philosophy is dead, which I think is a fairly bold claim. Philosophy is dead. Uh, when one of his colleagues, Professor Jay Isham, who's also a theoretical physicist, so uh, one of one, a person in his own field, when he heard that he said, well, actually Hawking's never read a philosophical book in his life. Um, but I know, and I know that his uh, theory of the multiverse doesn't explain gravity, uh, the physicist said. Another eminent uh, physicist, John Polkinghorne, has written, Scientists who make arrogant claims that science can tell you everything worth knowing are making a boastful claim that doesn't stand up. And he also said, actually, Hawking's claim is not scientific because it can't be measured in that way. Now, I know all those things, but Hawking's words disturb me. And it's not just things like science. I mean, maybe you don't care about science that disturb us. But Dr Luke the physician who wrote the biography of Jesus called Luke and um, this second volume we're looking at this morning, Acts, he knew that there were numerous things that undermine our conviction and confidence in Jesus. Um, I think there are many things that can torpedo us. So Luke uh, warns us in a parable that he tells, that Jesus told, um, that he recounts uh, in chapter 8 of his first volume, that our hearts and minds can easily be choked by life's worries and by its riches and pleasures. So it can be life's worries that do it, it can be riches and pleasure that do it. And time and again, Jesus warns us that there'll be opposition, opposition of those who wish to be owners rather than tenants in God's world. Uh, there'll be much opposition from people who don't like the aroma of Christ because they're determined to live their life their own way and make up their own rules. They're going to hold on to control. And 
you and I, Christians, are an offence to them because you're saying, well, actually, I'm not doing that. I'm kneeling before the Creator. In fact, Luke so anticipates the normal Christian experience will contain one hit after another. He so anticipates this that he writes in his introduction to his first book in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and the reason is so that you may know the certainty, the certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke's writing to people who know about Jesus, have heard about Jesus, Christians, and he's writing to give us certainty of the message of Jesus. That's his overall goal in writing. Because he knows the sort of world we live in. And so as we come to Acts 13, our passage this morning, uh, if you can look with me at Acts 13, if you've got a Bible there, uh, we're starting in verse 13. So if you can look at that verse, the first verse with me, we'll see another huge, a potential huge torpedo to our confidence in the message of Christ. So Luke is being realistic and he puts this in. Verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John, John Mark, John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, Luke announces this in a matter-of-fact way. There's no uh, blame apportioned in the way he presents it here. But if we read on later on, we find out in chapter 15 that they actually deserted. He deserted them. They were deserted by John Mark in Pamphylia. Now, we read this, that we read that in chapter 15 that he would not continue with the work. But now, 20 years later... Um, as Paul is in jail uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, well, actually, get Mark for me because he's helpful to me in my ministry. So this isn't the end for John Mark. He, he's a deserter, but he later on becomes a wonderful servant and produces the gospel of Mark. So this guy goes from deserter to helpful servant, but actually it's, it must have been devastating when fellow Christian workers like John Mark left. It is devastating when fellow Christian workers desert. Now why did he desert? Why did he abscond? We don't know. But verse 14, if you look down, from Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, which is about a hundred miles over the mountains, uh, and continues, on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. Verse 15, after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Well, what would you now expect Paul to say? I mean, Paul had had this long journey over the mountains, over rugged, dangerous terrain. He had all that time to process Mark's desertion. So I think Paul would have been wondering why that happened. He would have been thinking about himself. Well, why wasn't he doing the same? Why, why is he keep keeping going on? He could have said, well, you know, I'll just head back to Tarsus. There's a nice little cottage there. I'll, I'll just spend my life there. I'll be quiet. Uh, so why is he going to go on? Why is he going to keep going on and preaching? Well, we see here that Paul's certainty is because of history. Now, Mark may have deserted, and that would have been a real blow. Let's not deny that. These things happen. But we mustn't let unexpected disappointments destroy the certainty that we can rely on. 
Don't let what you don't understand undermine what you do. So my first heading um, is certainly because of history. Certainly because of history. That's heading number one. So Luke, um, Luke's first full summary of one of Paul's sermons is here before us this morning in chapter 13. And although some of the some of the people there are Gentiles, God-fearers, God-fearing Gentiles, it's essentially addressed to a Jewish audience. So I wonder if you can imagine the scene. It's a Sabbath day, the venue is the synagogue, the readings have been from the law and the prophets, and the listeners, do you see verse 16, are fellow Israelites. And there's a theme that comes 11 times in seven verses, in verses 17 to 23. I wonder if you can see it. Just have a look down at verses 17 and 23. Read through them. See if you can see the theme that comes, it comes 11 times. So here's Paul's message to the people. Uh, I believe that the reduced Shakespeare company can do all of Shakespeare's 38 plays in 11 minutes. Well, here Paul does all 39 books of the Old Testament in seven verses. And I'm asking you to look at it and say, what is absolutely central to what he's saying? And the clue I'll give you is that it's in the verbs. So have a look. What comes seven times in verses 17 to 23? Well, I don't know if you've finished reading those, but... Uh, I wonder if you can see the key theme. It has, all has to do with the verbs, the verbs that unpack it. So verse 17, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. Verse 18, for about 40 years, they, uh, he endured their conduct. He endured. Verse 19, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to the people as an inheritance. Verse 20, uh, all this took 450 years. After that, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish. Verse 22, after removing Saul, he made David king. And verse 23, from this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. Now, what we have here is... We need to get this clear, or we won't be certain about life. So the aim of this morning is to give us certainty about where our lives are going. And so we've got to get this clear. Can we see verse 17? God chose Israel from all the peoples of the earth. So God, God did it. God's at work. They didn't sort of grow from mere natural fertility. God made them grow. He flexed, he flexed his muscle. He is their mighty deliverer. He led them out of Egypt. So what's at the heart of history? God. God's at work. He's at work. Verse 19, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan. So sure, the people swung the sword. But what we see here is that God's hand is behind their triumph. And we see the people of Israel walk into the promised land. And why do they see victory? Well, Proverbs 21 verse 31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So God's hand behind it. Verse 20, God gave them judges. So these rulers, these judges, they didn't rise up in the normal course of human events. 
God raised them up, which I suppose should keep them humble. Verse 21, God gave Israel their first king, King Saul. And God removed him. And God made this shepherd boy king instead of him. He put him in his place. God did it all. God did it. And David knew that. And that maintained his humility most of the time. So we read in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He, God, changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raise them up, raises them up. And in chapter 4, verse 32 of Daniel, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms on the earth, all kingdoms on the earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. So let me say it again. What is at the heart of history? This is. God doing things is. And that's what our certainty is based on. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, there are many views of history. Um, so there's the Marxist view. They observe that uh, history starts with feudalism, then progresses to capitalism, and then socialism, and when that fully blossoms, it turns into full communism. So that's how they think history unfolds. Feudalism, capitalism, socialism, communism. Now, there are others who say, well, no, history's not that, that neat and tidy. It's not really about the class struggle. It's about chaos. Uh, this is famously known as the Cleopatra's Nose theory of history. I don't know if you've heard about it. Uh, it says what ultimately led to Mark Antony's downfall, uh, which had huge repercussions in the ancient world. What was it? Well, the answer to that theory gives is it's not in the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, but it's Cleopatra's Nose, because Antony was apparently infatuated uh, with her beauty, and in particular by her nose. But there's no pattern of history because what if, well, what if her nose had been a bit larger or a bit shorter or had a big wart on it? You know, everything would have been different. So the rise and fall of the nation depends, people, some people say, on random things like that. History is guided by no one and nothing. It's just chance. Well, that's one view. So all you have left, T.S. Eliot says, is birth, copulation and death. That's all you've got left. And the Bible says, no, that's not right. No. The central theme of history is not the class struggle, and it's not the chaos theory, but God rules over human affairs. God is in control of human history. He's in charge of the nations. Israel might be special, but every nation in the world is shaded in the same colour. That is, they all belong to the Lord. Every nation. Putin's Russia. Xi's China. Albanese is Australia. So the rise and fall of nations depends not on random things. And the sun never sets on God's soil. Now, that's not to say that people don't rebel against God. People rebel. That's acknowledged in the passage we read. So in verse 18, if you can look with me again at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And it was pretty much rebellion from start to finish. Verse 21 says, Then the people asked for a king. And that phrase, you might know, contains the story of a clenched fist against God's rule. 
So the people said, well, God, we don't, don't just want you, we actually want a king like all the nations surrounding us. You're not enough for us, God, give us a king. We want a king. So it's a clenched fist of rebellion here too. So yes, again and again, there's rebellion in the hearts of people. But that does not stop God being God. He's still in control. And he brings his purposes to past. So history is God's doing. And let's just see that again, because we need to get that in place. So verse 17, he chose. Verse 18, he led them out. Verse 19, he overthrew seven nations. Verse 21, he gave them Saul. Verse 22, he made David king. So this is how the Bible views history. Uh, one commentator, William Barclay is his name, um, he's written this. What, what do you think of this? He wrote, If the Bible writers had written about the escape from Dunkirk in the Second World War, it might have come out something like this. The Lord brought low clouds over the beaches so the German bombers could no longer fly safely. The Lord raised up a great armada of ships and the Lord gave willingness into the hearts of many to take those ships across the sea. Did he hear it? It's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. But we don't think like that, do we? When I think about history, when I listen to history programs or, or read books about it, they're not like that. I, I don't think like that. We, I've been brainwashed. And I think maybe you have been too. We've been brainwashed into stripping away every idea of God being in control of the events of human history. We say, well, you know, just give us the facts. Let's get rid of all opinion when it comes to history or reporting. That's how we want our stories told. That's how we sometimes hope to write our history. But when we say get rid of all that, get rid of all interpretation, there's a built-in assumption that there isn't any rhyme or reason to history. It's just events, random events. It's all unconnected. So, And the advantage of that for us is that means I can live as I please. Well, for many people, that's the advantage. There's no underlying narrative. And of course, what this display, displays is an unimaginable disregard for the God who is the main reality in the universe. He is the explanation behind everything. Without him, all the theories and interpretations are superficial. They're shallow, they're in inadequate without him. So you need to realise this as you watch or read the news. Uh, the underlying supposition is there of those who produce those things, the news, that there's nothing really at the heart of the universe. But what is at the heart of the universe? Well, Colossians 1 says, Jesus has put everything together. He created everything and he holds all things together. Because it's not acknowledged, because Jesus is not acknowledged, it means what we read and see in the media cannot be anything other than superficial and naive. It's superficial and naive because in verses 17 and 23, God did it all. Well, what about you? Will you let Luke put you straight here? God is in control of human history. He's in charge of the nations. So we can be certain about history. And here's the issue. 
It's not therefore about class. It's not just an un uh, unconnected set of events. So that leads to the next question. Well, what is it about? Uh, the question is, well, if God's in control, where is history going? What am I to make of what I see around me? What's the focus? And the answer to that is our second point. So secondly, Paul says, we have certainty because of Christ. Now, he is the goal of history. But it's not just certainty about history. I can also be certain as I walk through life because of Christ. So have a look at verse 23. If you look down, verse 23. From this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. I don't know if you remember what Christmas was like when you were a small child. Um, I have no idea what your Christmas was like. But in our house, uh, we had lots of anticipation. There was lots of build-up to Christmas. There was a tree, there was decorations, there were cards, there were all sorts of things. In fact, I remember one Christmas when I was quite young. Um, we'd been to the toy shop and uh, we looked at a few things and I had my eye on a few things. And I think one of our parents must have distracted us while the other parent bought some things and put them in the boot so we didn't notice. Anyway, we got home um, and the next day wrapped presents appeared under our tree. And I, being uh, a curious child, a small child, I tore a very small bit off one of the, one of the packages, one of the presents, about two centimetres square, not very big, but I recognised it immediately. It's what I'd been looking at in the shop with longing. And as soon as I saw it, recognition was instant. Um, what I saw was a yellow horn on some sort of robot. I don't remember that toy very well now, but I remember that day. Um, and I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait three days for Christmas. Literally, I couldn't wait. So my parents actually relented and gave it to me early. Well, Israel had been waiting for centuries for Christmas. God had been building up the anticipation. I'm sending a king in the line of David, he told them. He's going to be the saviour to all who trust in him. It's going to be wonderful. And now Paul stands up at Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue and says, guys, it's Christmas morning. That's what he says. There's good news of great joy for all the people because to us, this day, a saviour has been born, who is Christ the Lord. It's, it's Christmas morning. It's come. It's finally come. God has been true to his promise. He sent a saviour to Israel. So if you can see verses 24 and 5, before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for. But there is one coming after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. In other words, John is, don't look at me, look at him. He's coming, he's coming. It's almost here. Uh, but there's a massive elephant in the room as Paul speaks. You see, there's a but. Paul knows that everyone in the room is unsure if what he's saying is right. Is it? Really, Christmas morning? The Messiah, has he come? Well, you know, if Jesus, God's, God's coming king, has come, well, why did nobody in Jerusalem recognise him? Yeah, the Jews say, you know, we look to Jerusalem. We look to them for leadership. 
but, but they didn't recognize him. I mean, maybe a few did, but, but not the Jewish leaders, not the ruling class. And Paul's answer is, well, they should have. They should have done. They should have recognized him. So verse 27, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. So obviously he wasn't the Messiah if he wasn't recognized by them. But Paul goes on. Yet in, uh, yet in condemning him, Jesus, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. They found no one, sorry, they found no proper ground for a death sentence. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they, verse 29, when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Well, there's so much in here in those verses that give us certainty. It's almost hard to know where to begin. So Paul says, if the people in Jerusalem knew their Bibles, if they'd known their Bibles properly, they would have never rejected Jesus in the first place. How, I mean, how could they forget the promises that they had read every week for centuries? Verse 27. But here's the issue. The more violently they tried to oppose or get rid of Jesus the more they proved that Jesus was the Christ. You see, they were filling predictions at every point. So though, verse 28, there was no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They thought they were acting completely against him, but that does not stop God's purposes being fulfilled. So we need to get our minds around this. So at Calvary, at the cross, you have many people shaking their fists against God. You've got, you've got the sin of the chief priests, you've got the sin of Pilate, the sin of Judas, the sin of the people. But this does not make God less than God. You can be certain of him because he has it all under control. And it all moves towards his appointed end. So verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written about him, so they're rebelling, they're killing God's son, and God is saying, yes, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled. And here's the point. You have to be very, very powerful to have your enemies do your bidding while they're acting against you. You get that? You have to be very, very powerful to have your enemies do your bidding while acting against you. So let's just think about what that means. So as we search for certainty in life, imagine you're back in the first century. Imagine you're one of the early disciples. And you're standing near the cross on that day. On that day. You're an early disciple. And you're looking at three criminals being crucified. And the one in the centre is the one you call Lord and Master. And as he dies, all my hope dies with him. All now seems like chaos. There's no certainty in my life. Oh, I suppose I'm still alive, I'm still breathing, so I'll go back to my fishing in Galilee. But this is the worst day of my life. I'd hoped, I'd hoped, but, well, it's all gone. He's dead, he's murdered. It's total chaos. Evil men are in control. 
And at that point, of course, we'd be asking, how could God let that happen? I mean, I'm standing at the cross, he's dying. How could God let this happen? This is total chaos. I had such hopes. Well, maybe I'll desert now too. I mean, of course. This, this faith in this man, it's over. Look at it, hanging there naked. Laid in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. It's over, it's total chaos, there's no hope. I'm just a piece of DNA. I didn't know about DNA back then, but just somebody stranded in the universe. But now, now the early church calls that darkest day in history, they call it Good Friday, we call it Good Friday. They saw the hand of God. You see, they realised that even on the darkest day, God was in control. It was his will. I mean, you can look back 700 years to Isaiah 53, or back to Psalm 22. You could, you could read the prophecies. It had been his plan. His son, the suffering servant, came to die. Everything that happened on the cross was pre-planned by God. So if God is in control on the darkest day, he's certainly in control today. God is in charge. He's in command. I have absolute certainty. I can have absolute certainty. And that comes from Jesus' cross. Now that doesn't mean I understand everything. I know everything about my life. There's still mystery. But certainty doesn't rule out mystery. I'm not saying in your life that there are things that you don't understand. I'm not saying there's no mystery. But what I am saying is God is in control. He had the power to be in control on that day. And if he's in control on that day, he's in control today. Uh, so the author, John Blanchard, wrote a book about, um, about 9-11, uh, September 11, 2001. Uh, it was called, Where Was God on 9-11? And he writes, Where was God on 9-11? In exactly the same place he was 2,000 years ago when they drove the nails into his hands and his feet. So don't be fooled. God is in control. He was then, he is now. Though it may look like chaos, it's all moving towards God's appointed end. That's what's happening in your life. That's what's happening in my life. That's what's happening in our lives. I can be certain. I can look back at the cross and when I see it, I realise he's in control. I can look back at history and I see it. He was in control. Now that in no way releases us from our responsibility. The Bible tells us we're still responsible for our actions. But our actions and our responsibility does not stop God being God. You can't stop God being God. And the resurrection of Jesus puts that beyond any doubt. Because up until that point, up until Jesus rose again, it may have seemed like chaos and human rebellion. It may have seemed like those things that had the last word. But then, verse 30, if you can look down one last time, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. The Battle of Waterloo, apparently, was fought on Sunday, June 18, um, 1815. Uh, so Wellington's facing Napoleon's army. What would the outcome be? Well, one of the main lookout posts, apparently, um, 
that spotted signals from the ships in the channel that relayed signals from the battle um, was on the was on Winchester Castle. Um, so the, the battle was fought in Belgium, what's now Belgium, um, and the signal post was on the peak of Winchester Cathedral uh, near Southampton, the cathedral. But that day there was a severe fog and it made the signal almost impossible to read. But eventually a, a message could dimly be made out and the message was just two words, Wellington defeated. And so that dreadful news passed from beacon to beacon across the country. And only when the fog lifted could one extra word be seen. And it made all the difference. Wellington defeated Napoleon. Jesus looked defeated. It looked like that. If he stood on Good Friday before the cross, Jesus defeated. It looked like that. But not on Easter Sunday. And not in your life. Because Christ is risen. He's risen. And in verses 32 to 35, Paul pulls out the Old Testament again and says, it was predicted, it was predicted, it was predicted, it was predicted that he would rise. So are you ready for him? Now, let me finish. Here's the big thing. I don't know where the fog has come down in your life, on your certainty, in the apparent chaos of this world. But I know sometimes, often, it looks like chaos. I don't know where the fog comes down on your certainty. I don't know what caused Mark in verse 13 to desert. But Mark turned around, didn't he? He came back, became a fine Christian servant. But he had to be grounded in the certainties to do that. Yes, God is in control of history. He is. And he was in control of the cross. And he's in control on my darkest day. Christ is risen. That is certainty. Christ stands at the head of history. He is the focus. He is risen. So when the fog, when there's fog, allow these certainties, allow what you do understand not to be undermined by what you don't understand. Because, well, because verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Paul's saying it's now possible to have a relationship with God that starts now and stretches on into eternity. And that's all possible because of what Jesus has done. He's paid in death and blood for my sin. So whatever else is foggy in your life, that much is clear. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is in control of history and Christ is in control of the circumstances of my life.